Welcome to another episode of Through Another Lens. Uh, Through Another Lens is a football culture podcast, but it's also a multicultural podcast, and that's a big theme for today's episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about the World Cup. It's our last episode, which we're going to be focusing on the ongoing Qatar World Cup. And as always, we're going to be focusing on off-field issues more than on-field issues. Um, so ahead of the final, uh, I thought it'd be interesting to discuss how the World Cup is packaged, produced and broadcast across different countries. Um, and to do that with me, uh, I've got Simon Wallman. Simon, who is a producer at BBC News for more than three decades uh, and is currently a lecturer at St. Mary's University. Simon, great to have you here. It's good to be here, Shubi. Thank you. And I've got Jackson Fuller from the US. Uh, Jackson's an award-winning journalist and currently working with the Sports Gazette. Jackson, good to have you back, man. Great to be back, Shubi. I was uh, on the inaugural one and it was a blast, so I had to come back. Thanks for having me. Um, Jackson, you've made the most appearances on Through Another Lens. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll get you a plaque with that soon. Much deserved. Much deserved. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so... So before we really dive into this current World Cup and how it's been broadcast, Simon, I'm going to start with you. Um, how does the BBC prepare for the World Cup? When do preparations start? And could you just tell us a little bit about the process behind the scenes when it comes to covering a World Cup? Well, preparations for the next one in four years' time in uh, the States, Mexico and Canada have already begun. Uh, what uh, being wow. being the BBC uh, and and ITV, uh, the the negotiations uh, between the broadcasters, frankly, are pretty much ongoing. Um, there is a difference between the coverage of the matches themselves and the news coverage. Uh, of the whole of the World Cup. But what's been interesting with this one, I think, is the amount of non-football coverage on the football programs. Uh, I'm sure we'll come to that in a little while. But the, the, the preparation uh, is uh, detailed, painstaking, and uh, certainly with the BBC, <laughs> it involves a lot of meetings. And how do the BBC and ITV, do the teams work together to come up with a plan for coverage or do they do it independently and then at the last minute really trade notes? The way, the way that the uh, television coverage uh, of the big competitions, um, football, other, other sports, the Olympics uh, work is that there is a host broadcaster so there is a uh, there is a core coverage that is provided to broadcasters all around the world for the, anyone who buys the rights. Um, and I'm not sure who is running it. It could be Bein, who who are big in the in the Middle East. Um, and the BBC and ITV take that coverage uh, for for the matches and then overlay their own uh, pundits uh, commentary and so on but the but the core feed the pictures that we all see all around the world are identical um, can be opted away from 
um, we've we've had the we've had the controversy of um, uh, Iran's state broadcaster not using the pictures of um, Iran fan, female Iran fans without hijab or or carrying the the, uh, the protesting placards, um, but the 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 core coverage uh, is just supplied by the host broadcaster. Many, many dozens of cameras in each ground, of course, um, the, the more satellite trucks than you can throw a stick at. And then the BBC and ITV in the UK put their commentary and their analysis teams on top of that as an extra layer. Yeah, um, it's interesting you brought up the Iran thing because I know when they didn't sing the national anthem before the England game, the Iranian broadcasters cut the footage. Um, so I think, yeah, it's interesting how they have control. Um, Jackson, uh, so this must, like for me, this was your first time, I guess, watching the World Cup on from the UK. Um, what have you made of the BBC and ITV's coverage so far? I think it's been really good, uh, especially compared to some of the coverage back home in the States. And we can we can touch on that later. But I'm just it's so shocking to me that you have two major media corporations that share the rights. That's just something that really never happens in the States. You get it sometimes in golf with a little, you know, NBC might get Thursday, Friday and CBS gets Saturday, Sunday. But for a big tournament like this. For it to all, you know, ITV gets one day, BBC gets the next. I mean, Fox and ESPN would have a stroke if they had to share the the coverage with each other. So that's been my biggest takeaway. But on a on a day to day basis, I've I've been really impressed with the coverage. I think they've done a very admirable job tackling the issues off the field, like Simon says and uh, said. Excuse me. And uh, I think the uh, the. The one thing that I get I get here that I don't necessarily get too much back in the states is pretty solid tactical analysis, and uh, that, that's been a been a pleasure to to watch so far. I think I have like you. I've watched a couple of games on the US stream as well. Um, you know, just to get a better experience of what it's like there as well. And I think like uh, there is the bit of the tactical now is lacking, um, and we'll obviously get to that and the skating guardian article. Uh, which completely eviscerated Fox's coverage. Um, Simon, have you been involved in any World Cup coverages? I think in 2010, were you in South Africa for the World Cup? Yes, I, um, I went to South Africa for BBC News in 2010. Um, and uh, my job was essentially to uh, produce the, the uh, presenter, the anchor, who was sent uh, to cover all the matches, but essentially we were following England. Um, and uh, I spent uh, quite a lot of time watching some pretty dire England football. Um, a few other games as well. Uh, what was interesting was that most of the bespoke camera and satellite equipment uh, had already been claimed by either other broadcasters or BBC Sport. So we had a really, really ramshackle, um, ramshackle setup uh, that was uh, not very affectionately nicknamed Backy Sat. 
and essentially it was uh, it was rather than a satellite truck which you're used to seeing you know a truck with a big dish on the top uh, we had an estate car and we had to pull the dish out of the bag and set it up with wires trailing everywhere it was complete chaos and um, we had a great time but before the England USA game uh, we'd set up um, uh, in a in a bar uh, very close to the ground but not not that close like a mile from the ground and i was wandering around and i suddenly found myself directly opposite the the, the, the ground itself and here is a bar and it is teeming with american and <laughs> england fans and i rang the technical guy and i said i'm really sorry i know you're all set up over in the town square over there can you move can we come here and the the uh, the language was uh, blue in the extreme but we made it and and it was one of the more memorable uh, times because the american fans were un yeah i can imagine and from a broadcast perspective is it better when the team you're covering is doing well are there more stories or is there equally when the team is doing as badly as england did in 2010 are there more stories to dive into as well there in 2010 uh england just didn't play very well but they managed to progress at least to the to the last 16 um i think there were more stories in a previous world cup when when um it was all about capello and uh the wags the wives and girlfriends and the shopping and the and the overconsumption um i i remember from south africa that there was a lot of concentration on the uh on the football itself which was mediocre from england point england's point of view but some uh, some great games not involving england and also the the friendliness of it um the huge distances that had to be covered by the fans and being quite shocked pleasantly shocked at the way that the england fans managed to get from cape town to bloemfontein to johannesburg huge huge distances you know i mean generally flights it made it uh, a different atmosphere to uh, say germany um or some of the, some of the european world cups because brutally you got more middle class um affluent fans so there was there was uh significantly less um loutish drunken behavior violence than at some previous world cups yeah that's interesting because the qatar world cup is completely different to that right like i think that's like a 35 km radius between or where all the stadiums are um Jackson you know one thing which really um I don't want to say it jarred for me but I guess which was striking was how the broadcasters uh here there there is no even like any signs of trying to be objective with England's coverage right um when you watch the England France game together and it was so heavily biased that like it was it felt a bit like I don't know like it was a bit off putting at times Um I know for example Philippe Oclair on the Football Weekly podcast said he turned off the commentary uh because he said it was too much to take and it was a disgrace. Uh how do you feel about that? 
It's funny, Shubi, because I tend to lean towards I'm okay with the bias for the most part. I think every journalist being unbiased is uh, a goal to have, but for the most part, a goal that's difficult to achieve, especially when you're covering a World Cup and your nation's competing in the quarterfinal against a chief rival. But I do think that the the quarterfinal match against France might have been a little too far with the bias, but I'm okay with it. These announcers are they're human beings too. They're fans of the England team. And for the most part, well, for the most part, the people that are watching the ITV BBC broadcast are English, you know, uh, it's, it's here in England, it's across Great Britain as well. So of course, uh, you know, Scotland, Northern Ireland, they're, they're getting the same broadcast and it's, uh, maybe they're not cheering for England, but for the most part, again, it's, it's English fans watching this broadcast and it's, it is what it is. I think it's, it's something that happens as well in the States. Uh, maybe not as much during the games, but in between games in the build up to games, there's a, like pump up speeches almost coming from Alexi Lawless and, and the studio. So I don't mind a little, a little bit of bias. Maybe, maybe the quarterfinal match went too far, but it's okay. It's supposed sports are meant to be fun. And uh, I enjoy when the announcers have fun as well. Um, both BBC and ITV uh, in the news side and in uh, general programme making have very strict guidelines on impartiality. Um, that's not to say uh, a, a very simple mechanical balance between people who say A and people who say B. There is an exception um, for sport. And journalists and uh, commentators are allowed to wear their, their colours on their sleeves, um, particularly when it comes to the national team, so that um, you know when you're watching BBC and ITV and England are playing, the studio is rooting for uh, England. Uh, in fact, they, they, will, they, they do, they show um, during the halftime break, they show the, the, uh, the studio team at the ground reacting to the England goal. And I mean, Ian Wright is probably the one who, who springs to mind. He just goes absolutely mental when England score a goal. Um, but it's something that I think the, the UK audience is expects it is comfortable with it i don't uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear your your opinion on this i don't think it does go too far because what you get from the the commentary team the, the, the commentator the summarizer and the studio is an appreciation and a recognition of the opposition's skill tactics players you know it was i mean there was, <laughs> there was a lot about mbappe um and and a recognition about of, of how good the French team were from a point of view of still wanting plucky England to win. No, I think, I think, I think that's a great point is that there's a recognition you, you, when you're going to watch a game on ITV or BBC as a, as a fan, you just have to, as if you're an international living in the UK, you just have to come with the recognition that there's going to be some, some bias there and, and it's appropriate. And if, if, Ireland were playing in a World Cup, the Irish broadcast would probably be biased as well. And if, if India were in a World Cup, the Indian broadcast, I imagine, would be biased. I think I think Simon's convinced me that it didn't go too far for the quarterfinal. But what I will say, last night uh, during halftime of the, the France-Argentina game, we got an England team feature, and uh, it was on mute at the pub. But I don't think they've given any interviews in that 
kind of sense since. And I, th- I thought that was a little strange that we're, we're still talking, still talking about England, but like you said, Simon, that's, uh, that's who the market is for. So I guess it makes sense. What, you know, Shubi, what is it, how does it compare to maybe the, uh, the world cups that you've watched in, in India? Firstly, Jackson, I do not appreciate the dig you took at if India's at the world cup, you watch in, in 50 years, we're going to be there in 50 years. India's going to be lifting the trophy. Um, but no, I, I completely agree. And I guess it, it is that, right? Like I was thinking, like, for example, Jackson, you tune in to the Fox coverage, right? I'm guessing especially for the US games at this World Cup because you are looking for that bias actively, right? You want your team to be the focus of everything they're talking about. Um, and I've noticed the same thing there across that as well, right? Um, when I was watching the US-Iran game on the Fox stream and when Pulisic scored, I found it... Like, they kept referring to him as, oh, Captain America has done it. Oh, Captain America has done it, right? Like, a couple of times. And I found that interesting because everywhere else, if you look at Europe or the England, like, that is seen as, like, it's said as a joke, right? Oh, Pulisic is Captain America. But here on the national broadcast, you have people actively referring to him as that, right? And people like Landon Donovan and stuff, right? Like, not just, like a B-grade presenter or broadcaster. So I found that pretty interesting, but I'm, I guess it's finding a, who they're catering to, right? Who the audience is. Uh, that's a pretty important part. talk a little bit about specifically Qatar uh, and I think before we really get into the games and the match coverage I want to start with the opening ceremony and uh, the BBC's decision not to air it uh, on national television and only for BBC iPlayer their streaming service. Um, Simon what did you make of that decision and how do you think the BBC came to you know deciding to do that? I wasn't expecting uh, the BBC to cover not a frame of the opening ceremony uh, in the live coverage. Uh, I most certainly was expecting some form of current affairs style examination of uh, Qatar's human rights record. huge human cost uh, for for migrant workers um, in building the stadia and all the infrastructure. I wasn't expecting uh, Gary Lineker to be talking to the BBC's Middle East editor, Jeremy Bowen. Um, I've since discovered that uh, clearly uh, this, this was a decision taken at a very, very high level in the BBC. I wouldn't be surprised if the final sign-off didn't go as high as the Director General, because it was a, a, a quite uh, momentous political decision to to give quite such uh, emphasis to all of the human rights problems, the, the allegations over corruption and the bidding process and all of that. Um, it was something, um, interestingly, that even the senior figures that I've been talking to in BBC Sports News weren't expecting. 
they hadn't been told that this is what Lineker and the team would do. Uh, there's been a huge amount of criticism of it um, uh, in uh, various sections of the media, uh, but there's also been praise for it. Um, my personal opinion is uh, it was I commend them for making the decision. I think uh, a little shocking and a uh, little bit trying not to not showing the opening ceremonies and but then going out and showing the world the entire world cup is you know it's like okay how tough of a stand are you really taking but uh i think bbc just wanted to make clear that we have to show this we be or the tournament we have to show the tournament it's a major global sporting event england are a major part of it uh it's financially beneficial for us but we do stand with the, you know, the human rights we are against, or we know that we need to make a statement about the human rights issues that are going on in Qatar, and this is our way to do that. So uh, they, they felt like they had to do something, and I, I respect that that was their decision. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's it'll be a footnote when we look back on this, on this World Cup. Yeah. You know, I found, I was thinking about that as well, right? Because I watched the opening ceremony with my roommate, who's an Egyptian. And I could feel that there was a sense of pride he had, right? That the Middle East has got a World Cup. They're putting on a show and opening ceremony. And I remember he had some work to do. He said, I'll watch the opening ceremony, but I don't care if I miss the game, right? And I guess what being living here in UK or in the US, wherever, right? Like, for a lot of people in the Middle East, this is a massive deal, right? Like that they are getting the World Cup. And I think BBC's decision not to air it really felt like disrespectful, I guess, for them. Uh, right? I guess like how Simon, you said, right? It was a bit heavy handed at times. And I guess it, it just felt like this is our moment and you have just decided not to air it at all. I guess there is a time and place for it. Maybe they could have ended the opening day coverage with the segment on what's going on in Qatar and human rights issues. But uh, maybe it was a bit too drastic to not air it at all. I agree, Shubi. And I think the, it's... the word you've just used, disrespectful, uh, is absolutely right. Um, I think that there were many, many people in the UK who wanted to see at least some of the opening ceremony. I think that uh, what... Uh, BBC Sport decided to do was probably the right thing to do in principle, but they took it too far. It was, as you say, it was disrespectful. And let's not forget that the opening ceremony in a World Cup is nothing like the opening ceremony in an Olympic Games. The Olympic Games opening ceremonies are something that is really, really spectacular. I mean, the, the uh, I'm remembering um, London 2012, which I can still remember aspects of it. So the opening ceremony of a World Cup is, is less of an attraction. But nevertheless, this was the first World Cup in the Middle East. Uh, it was, it was they, they put <laughs> clearly a hell of a lot of money into it, uh, as they have uh, into the tournament as a whole. Um, maybe we can talk about the finances. Um, and I think it was, I think your word disrespectful not to show any of it live was. I agree with you guys, but I do think BBC, they they felt like they wanted to make a statement right off the bat too. If, if, if I'm 
you know, reading into the decision. And uh, it's it's just a it's it's a shame that their decision ended up offending a lot of people. Uh, but hey, they they serve like we just talked about with the uh, the biased announcers. They serve a specific audience, and uh, they wanted to echo to their audience that we don't necessarily support what's going on there. And uh, it was disrespectful to a lot of people, but. Uh, they're going to have to, the producers are, I think, I don't think they are, maybe Simon can speak to this, but I don't think they are regretting it. And if they are, that's probably, probably not too much regret. I think there is, I think there is a, an element of regret because it was the, the <laughs> over the topness of the, um, of mm. the anti-Qatar polemic at the start uh, and I think that they are probably thinking do you know what we could have done we could have done this but we could have done it in maybe half the time and spent some of the time devoted to looking at the opening ceremony as well which would have provided a better balance I think that makes sense and I think you juxtapose that against the American broadcast where they they showed the opening ceremony and they didn't uh, talk about they, their policy for this World Cup with Fox has been to not talk about any off-field issues that don't affect the the game. So uh, it's kind of the, the two opposite ends of the spectrum there. And uh, I'm not sure which one's better, uh, but it's just interesting how these two global superpowers uh, opted for very different uh, ways of covering the, the opening ceremony and the World Cup as a whole. But, and I will say for the on-field criticism that, that Fox has received, if I, if I can be a somewhat defendant of them, uh, I just think a lot of American sports broadcasts are, they're not designed for the, the super fans. They're designed for the, the casual fan. Uh, if my mother is flipping through the channels and gets on an American football game, and they're analyzing how the running back did not do the right move, she's probably going to change the channel. If they're telling a story about, you know, the running back's uh, deceased mother, or they're telling, you know, pumping up the crowd or the, the, the viewer, she might tune in. And the same is applying here for this World Cup, where you're getting some very basic analysis and uh, some oftentimes very biased analysis. But Foxes, they know that the if you'll excuse me, the soccer fan in America is going to tune in for these World Cup matches and they want to try and get the casual viewer to tune in as well. I'm, I'm going to read a excerpt from the Guardian piece, uh, Jackson. Um, Whereas the US men national team is now a cosmopolitan ensemble of feather fine talents, the Fox team is the equivalent of a Farmers League 11 that hoofs it long and hopes for the best. Um. That is scathing, and I mean it's <laughs> it, it, it's incredible. And um, but I, I I do take your point, you know. And Simon, I want to bring you in there. Uh, when you are doing a broadcast for an event as global as the World Cup, uh, who do you cater to? Do you cater to the hardcore fans, or do you just try and cast the net wider and appeal to the most casual fan? Right. Uh. And how do you really find the balance between the two? Uh, in terms of the way that both BBC and ITV have covered the matches themselves, they have they have done uh, they've achieved a good balance 
uh, with with what Jackson was saying just now, there's been some there's been quite a bit of discussion of formation tactics, um, sort of semi-specialist football knowledge is being is being imparted but also they are talking about you know that i don't know the, the extraordinary circumference of jack grealish's calves so that they're they're bringing in they're bringing in the the casual fan i think that it's relatively easy for the uk broadcasters because uh football soccer soccer is our national game um we invented it. We may not be very good at it anymore, but, you know, <laughs> nobody can take that away from us. So there is a huge, huge interest in football in the United Kingdom. Uh, there is also a huge interest in the World Cup. I think that people were sceptical about this World Cup before it started. Uh, World Cups are supposed to be in the summer. You're supposed to, you know, come in from the garden in your shorts and your flip-flops with a can of cold beer and settle down to watch a match. Uh, suddenly we're watching in the depths of winter at 10 o'clock in the morning with a cup of cocoa. Uh, but I think that it has pleasantly surprised people. I think that there was relatively low expectation uh, surrounding the football in this World Cup and the interest in the football. And the audience figures in the UK have completely blown that that worry out of the water. The, the, the audience figures have been amazing. And, you know, like I was thinking about this balance, right, and about how you really try and get people interested into the game and what to expect from fans. Um, I can tell you from an Indian perspective, right, like there is a similar problem to the US where you have a set of hardcore proper football fans, but the vast majority don't really care about the sport, right? It's all about cricket in India. Um and what the broadcasters do is to get people interested in. It's not about who can, you know, give the best insight, the best coverage overall. It's about who are the guests on your panel, right? Like how big are the names? Um, so, for example, like at the Euros last year for, during Champions League uh, games, uh, you have people like David James who's on there, you know, Louis Garcia. Like they're guys who are known, but they aren't massive. Um, but it's quite telling that for this current World Cup, um, it, we had Wayne Rooney, Robert Perez, Sol Campbell, uh, Gilberto Silva, you know. Um, so they did really, you're going for a bigger name. Uh, it's about, and which I have noticed as well, right? Because I will want to listen to what they have to say versus what David James has to say versus perhaps the Indian football team captain, like a former Indian football team captain, uh, there is a clear hierarchy there. So I find it interesting about how, you know, we talk right now a lot about should former players be in, like, should they be broadcasters? Should they be in the media? What role do they have? Are they the best there? But, um, and I guess while that debate holds true to take place in a country like England, uh, in somewhere like India, a former player holds massive weightage. He holds massive pull. Uh, so I think that maybe, you know, for footballers who are trying to transition into media, uh, looking at somewhere like the Middle East or like Southeast Asia is a great place, I think, to build your brand, uh, so as to speak. 
I will say, Shubi, I, I want I one thing I forgot to mention uh, as I defended Fox a little bit is that it that there's other avenues of American uh, soccer media that are showing good broadcasts can be done. So Peacock, NBC's coverage of the Premier League is really good. Uh, CBS Sports and Paramount, I think they, they do an amazing job with uh, the Champions League. And of course, that's Micah Richards, Terry Henry, and Jamie Carragher, who are not American broadcasters, but it's an American company doing it. So it's not to say that it can't be done in the States. It's just, uh, I think, with this international and global of a tournament, Fox is opting to try and bring in the casual fans. Yeah, I, I think that's true. What do you feel about that, Simon, though, about getting former players on uh, into the broadcasting space? I think it's something that has been done uh, for many, many years. And so long as you have an articulate and intelligent footballer, former footballer, then uh, I'm going to listen much, much more to somebody uh, talking about a football match who has played at the top level. So a Shearer. Um, uh, I was I was going to say something slightly less than flattering about Wayne Rooney, but actually um, Wayne Rooney is a, is a reasonably <laughs> articulate young gentleman. You mentioned David James. Uh, he used to play for Watford, so he can do no wrong in my eyes. But he also he is he is a very very articulate uh, and knowledgeable person. He's not the biggest name, of course not, uh, but I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. Because as soon as you put a pundit on who has got experience uh, of playing the game, uh, so long as it's at a a high level, then their opinion and their... um, their their views are going to carry a great deal more weight. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to listen um, to to Alan Shearer more than I'm going to listen to Jackson or Shuby, to be honest. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> but he's right. It's it's a, there's a there's just an added level of credibility, right? That it's it's you can't really. You know, there's no way to fight against that when you've when you've played the sport and uh, can eloquently talk about it and do a proper job analyzing it. There's just an added level of credibility that that Shuby and I won't ever have. Really, there is an almost inexhaustible supply of former players, uh, particularly now that um, gender is not a barrier. And it's very interesting. I'm not going to name names, but it's very interesting watching. Um, the BBC, ITV, Sky, trying out new pundits and watching some of their disastrous first few appearances. Some of them never make it and you see them for three or four games and then that's it, they're gone. Um, And some of them actually do improve. Um, And I suppose, you know, I mean, everybody enjoys um, uh, Chris Kamara. On, on Sky Sports, you know, unbelievable. Jeff, was uh, was was there a penalty? I must have missed it, or was it, was he sent off? I must have missed it. You know, but um, it, he's become a character in himself. Um, and I think, but but there have been some some really quite um, 
unimpressive duds who have been wheeled out in front of the cameras for a few disastrous appearances and then never seen again. That's true. I think it's about when you get a former player on, I think it's important for them to kind of embrace the fact that they are starting from scratch, right? That they may have been amazing on the field, but you require a whole new skill set uh, to talk about the game, to present the game. Uh, which is why I think so often when you see former players come on, they always, all their analysis is just purely colored by their experiences, right? Like they offer nothing else that, oh, you know, when we used to do this or back in my day or uh, this player I used to play with used to say this. Um, so I think while that is important, it can't be the only thing uh, they offer when it comes to broadcasting. just touch upon a final thing about how both of you see the broadcasts of World Cup moving forward. Um, you know, do you think by the maybe 2034 or even 2030 for that matter, uh, a World Cup could be broadcast completely on YouTube uh, or Netflix only? Um, we're seeing that, right? Like you have Amazon Prime has got a certain set of Premier League games. Uh, they've got like some tennis grand slams here and there. So, I will start with you, Simon. Do you see that happening? Do you see that one day we will be all watching the World Cup on YouTube with YouTubers, each of them having their own individual live streams and watch-alongs and just a completely different uh, landscape? Yes, but I would say in the medium term rather than the short term. There are a number of uh, sporting events in the UK known as the crown jewels, um, which are uh, have to be broadcast uh, on free to air terrestrial channels. So the World Cup is, uh, is an example. Um, the Olympics are an example. Uh, Wimbledon is an example. Um, the BBC uh, used to have pretty much a monopoly on on a great deal of sporting action and then Sky came along and uh, before him Kerry Packer in in Australia with the cricket BBC's lost the rights to huge numbers of uh, sporting events most painfully I guess um, football live 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 football away from the from the FA Cup final and from uh, the World Cup so yes uh, but um, next World Cup in 26 and the one after that in 2030 I think will still be on terrestrial television free to air Jackson yeah and I I I hope I hope Simon's right because uh, as much as I love YouTube and kind of the new age of technology I there's just an added element of Oh, what's the right word? Importance of an aura when you get these events on the the old, older channels, the older television stations, even back home in the states, uh, when the college football playoff moved from ABC to ESPN. I remember being sad by that. You know, I hope the Super Bowl always stays on one of these uh, cable channels, and I hope the same for the World Cup. But 
it, it does seem like a matter of time before there is some difference in how we view the World Cup. I just hope it's far, far down the road and we can still kind of experience it like we have been for however long, you know, the BBC, ITV have kind of had the rights and uh, they, I think, it just carries a little extra added weight when those historic channels are uh, displaying the World Cup, and I hope it stays that way. But, yeah, it does feel like it's uh, impending where there's going to be some difference, not only with the World Cup, but with all major sporting events. I think it's also we need to consider the fact that there are going to be 48 teams, right, in the next World Cup. Um, this World Cup is growing in size. You're going to have more countries coming in. You have like a whole, like millions of new fans entering the sport from countries and regions and areas, which perhaps places like the BBC or Fox won't know how to cater to or cater for, right? So um, I think there is a level of maybe democratization of the coverage which will be needed. So I guess it will be like running side by side. So you will have the BBC, but you will also have a YouTuber live streaming the game. Um, so I think I think it's interesting. Uh, I think it'll be fun. And uh, I guess 2050, when India's lifting the World Cup, uh, I hope three of us will be on a YouTube channel calling the game. Great, guys. Fingers crossed, <laughs> Um They might win it before England does, you know? So <laughs> you can not... I think that's very true. I think that's um... very true, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, on that happy note, uh, I think we'll wrap up for today. Uh, Simon, thank you so much for joining me, us on Through Another Lens. It's been an great having pleasure you talking here. to you guys. And Jackson, uh, I think at this point, man, like I think you need to just become a permanent member of the podcast. Like, you're <laughs> like, just join us. Always a pleasure, Shubi. You guys have a, a great holiday season and a, and a happy new year. Cheers, guys.